So for our Sunday morning series, for several Sundays now and for several Sundays foreseeable in the future, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about the big story of the Bible. The Bible's got hundreds of stories, and we read them, uh, and how do we piece all that together? Do they fit into an overarching story? And they do. And ultimately that story is about Jesus and God. Um, becoming king of the universe. And, and so we've been piecing together what are the elements of that big story. And I'm going to skip over a big chunk of the narrative portion of the Old Testament and skip to what I think is the next most significant element of that big story, which is the king of Israel, the anointed one of Israel. Uh, this, uh, we had read for us this morning for our scripture reading this passage out of Samuel, and I put it there on your study sheets. Uh, this, this moment when Samuel, who has anointed a king, King Saul, and who has struggled with King Saul's weaknesses and tried to encourage King Saul to be a better king, uh, finally is confronted by God to say, yeah, I've rejected Saul. His line is not going to be the line that I use to provide my kings for my people. And I've chosen a new king, and he's in Bethlehem. And so you need to go to Bethlehem and find the one that I've chosen. I'll show him to you. And I want you to anoint him. <clears throat> and he will be the king that I choose. And of course, it's, it's pretty dramatic if you read the whole passage. You can go and read it on your own. Uh, Samuel shows up, and remember that Samuel is a prophet of God. He's also a judge of God. He's kind of the last of the judges. He's a war leader as well as a prophet. He has led battles. He has killed people. And so when he shows up in Bethlehem, the leaders of the town are terrified. They say, Samuel, are we in trouble? Have you come for war or for peace? And, and they're kind of all shaking in their boots. And he says, I've come for a very specific purpose. I want to have a sacrifice with the family of Jesse, David's father. And so they're relieved. And, and he goes out to Jesse's house and he says, I want to see your sons. Jesse's got eight sons. And, and, and the oldest is, is tall and strong and comes out. And Samuel thinks, Man, God picks well. Look at the size of this guy. And God says, nope, not him. I don't look on the outside. I look on the heart. And son after son passes in front of this great judge and prophet Samuel. And, and again and again he thinks, well, this is probably the one God's... Ch-. And again and again God says, no, not him. No, not him. Seven sons pass in front of of Samuel. And then... All the sons apparently have been presented. Samuel says, is that all? Because God told me that the one he wanted was here. He said, well, I have this other one. Uh, I didn't think you'd want to see him. He's out with the sheep. Nope, bring him in. We're not finishing the sacrificial meal. We're not sitting down to the sacrificial meal until he comes. And David is brought in, and, and he actually has a lot of the physical characteristics that you want from a king. He's, 
healthy and good-looking, strong. And God says, this is the one. Anoint him. And that's what Jesse, I mean, that's what Samuel does. Samuel takes the oil. Just like you do for a prophet sometimes, just like you always do for a priest when the priesthood passes to the next generation. Now for the king of Israel. He anointed Saul. And now he anoints, he christens a new king. When we say Jesus is the Christ, or when we say Jesus is the Messiah, or when we say Jesus is the anointed, we're saying the same thing, just in three different languages. It just means this right here, the one that has been chosen, anointed by God. To be Christ in Greek is to be the anointed. To be Messiah in Hebrew is to be the anointed. To be anointed in English means to be anointed. And so here we have this moment when Israel gets a king of God's choosing. And this is going to be the king that God uses, good and bad, for the rest of the history of Israel. Now this is a dramatic thing. If you read... The conquest of Joshua, we talked a little bit about that last week. And you read the, the story of the judges. You're reading all kinds of political ups and downs for the nation of Israel prior to, even if you read the first book of Samuel, Samuel the first Samuel, you're reading the political story, all of which really operates as prologue for this moment when David is anointed king and the rest of the story leads to him actually becoming king. That's actually the dividing line between First and Second Samuel is when David actually is going to become king. So that's probably the first thing I want to point out to you. All the political stories in the promised land before David lead up to David. And all the political stories after David look back to him. David becomes the high point of Israel's political history. All the judges, there were some wonderful people who served as judges and some pretty lousy people also who God used for that crisis in that moment. God doesn't have any perfect people to pick. And so he uses people that are pretty wonderful, like Deborah, in, uh, to be judge. And he uses people who are pretty lousy in terms of moral character, like Samson. He can use them all, because it's God that makes the judge, not the other way around. But the overall picture we get during the conquest and during the judges period is that this is, this is not working for Israel. It could work. They could truly trust God as their only king, but it's not working. And so all the political stories just serve as a prologue to say, yeah, we really are going to have to move to a kingship. God, that's not his preference, but he decides that David will be the one that he works with. 
And so David is now anointed as king. And ever after, every king that comes after is kind of judged by David. It's really interesting. Every king is sort of compared to the gold standard. David is the golden age. A lot of cultures have a golden age they look back to with longing. This may just be a feature of getting older. I don't know. I find this in myself. I don't like to think of myself as old, but my mirror just keeps shouting at me about it. And I find my own, you know, the words of my parents coming out of my mouth. You know, back in my day, it just seems like we just don't behave the way we used to. It just seems like we don't believe the things we... Maybe that's the reason why cultures tend to have a golden age in the past that they look back to. I'm not sure. Israel had that. They looked back to David. That was the time. That was the highlight. That was our best time. From this point on, this, this scripture in Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel 10, all the way through the rest of 1 Samuel, David is not king, but you can see God behind the scenes, through his providential dealings, setting the stage so that David will become king. And when he becomes king, he becomes politically a great king, militarily an amazing king. The, the, the nation of Israel is united under David. The nation of Israel extends its influence about as far as they ever were able to extend it. It's, it's one of the high points. The promises of Joshua's conquest, the closest they come to being fulfilled is during this period under David. And so Israel looks back and says, that was it. And every other king after that, even the good ones, are not quite as good as David. The golden age in the past. But there's a second part to the David story that's even more important and more important for us, probably. The kings, the bad kings, the good kings, the kings let the nations of Israel decay spiritually over time. There were kings that God raised up sometimes to bring people back to repentance, but overall... The trajectory of Israel is decay. We're going to talk about that in some of the future sermons in this series. And it's a sad story. People say, well, it's not like the time of David. And it's not. And eventually things get so bad in the apostasy of the people themselves, their willingness to make a deal with any spirit or any power or any so-called God that might promise them a little prosperity and a little advantage uh, so frustrates God and so violates the covenant that God says, I'm invoking the final curse of the law. You're going to lose the promised land that I gave you. And the northern kingdom goes into uh, captivity under the Assyrians and finally the southern kingdom of the Jews that includes Jerusalem and the Davidic kings goes into Babylonian captivity. 
even during those dark times, there was a promise. And people held on to that promise. It's said in several different ways in several scriptures, and, and, and those scriptures aren't too hard to find. I picked just one, this, this version of it, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 17. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of David and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness, or the Lord makes righteous. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Israel looks back to David so strongly, but in particular they look back to this promise made that David somehow is going to come back. That the time of David is going to come back. Most cultures have a golden age in the past. They look back with nostalgia. Things were better back then. Israel held on to this promise of God. That not only were things good under David in certain ways, something even better than David is coming. Is it ever hard for you, church, to believe the promises of God. Let's be real for a second with each other, okay? Let's be honest this much with each other. Is it ever hard to believe the promises of God? I think we will all admit that there are times when God seems so close to us We can't imagine how we ever have doubts. We can't imagine how anybody ever has doubts. When His answers to our prayers and His responses to our heart are are so strong and so immediate that doubt seems almost an impossibility. And there are other times because of disease and because of hardship sometimes, because of struggle and conflict sometimes, because of betrayal perhaps sometimes, that God seems very, very, very far away. And in those times, sometimes the only thing we can cling to are the promises that God has made. And I have to say, it's, it's, it's personally very emotional for me to read the things that the Psalms say and the prophets say This promise that God makes about the house of David and the way that even in the darkest time when the worst kings are on the throne or when the Babylonians are knocking down the walls, which is virtually what's happening when Jeremiah makes this prophecy, they say, yeah, but but God, even though we've been terribly unfaithful, God won't let His promises ultimately fail. And He will find a way to bring back the line of David. And there will be a time when David, the descendant of David, will sit on the throne. Through good times and bad, Israel looked back to the promises made to David as their hope 
for the future. Most cultures have a golden age in the past. Israel said, yes, there was a good time with David, but there is a better time to come. One of the most famous prophecies about David and the line of David is this one that's in Psalms 110. Actually, this is something I discovered as I was researching it this week. This is actually, Psalms 110 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. There's at least 25, I don't think I counted them all, but there's at least 25 times when this is quoted and alluded to in the New Testament. Psalms 110. The Lord says to my Lord, I'm just going to read the first four verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion his, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And the Lord has sworn and, sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot going on in that passage. Twenty times the New Testament makes reference just to verse 1. The right hand of God. The Son of David sometime will be seated at the right hand of God. I gave you a, a couple There are so many that talk about that reality for us. That Jesus, the son of David, will be not just a king, which he is, but also the priest for all of us. That's also taken from this passage. Hebrews spends chapters and chapters on that theme, that Jesus is the new priest, the priest in the order of Melchizedek as this psalm promises. Israel kept believing that a descendant of David would be enthroned at the right hand of God. And one of the most convincing proofs the early Christians offered was that Jesus had fulfilled this prophecy. Read the sermon that Peter preaches in Acts 2. There this prophecy is among the different Scriptures that Peter quotes. How is it that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us? How is it that you're seeing us speaking in tongues? It's only because Jesus, the same Jesus that you were shouting to be crucified, that same Jesus has not only conquered death, but He has fulfilled Psalms 110. He has been exalted to sit at the right hand of God. Read the sermon preached in chapter 3. Same passage is is pointed to. Read the sermon preached in chapter 5 when the Sanhedrin says, you guys got to stop preaching about Jesus. And, and they say, we've got to obey God rather than men. The Jesus that you crucified is sitting at the right hand of God. Read Stephen's uh, sermon when he is... When they can't stand hearing what he says in chapter 7 anymore, they rush at him, carry him outside, and and begin to kill him with stones. He says, "I, I can see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It's just laced through the New Testament. 
Jesus has fulfilled Psalms 110. It's something that was appealed to over and over again. And it wasn't just appealed to as evidence. It means a lot more than that. What does it mean to have the king that is at the right hand of God? It's interesting. Parallel cultures had different ways of of talking about the relationship of the king to God. Almost all of the Middle Eastern cultures would have some sort of divine connection to the king. You couldn't be king without having a divine connection. The Persians and the Egyptians typically just said, yeah, if you make it to king, you are a god. Nobody can be a king without being a god. Nobody can have that kind of power. You just are a god. The Egyptians said, the moment that they put that crown on your head, you become Horus, the son of Ra, the son of the sun. And there are praises to the Pharaoh in which uh, the Pharaoh sits enthroned, and there are gods on left and gods on the right. The Pharaoh is the center of attention. What does it mean to say that our king sits at the right hand of God? It's crucial to the story that the Bible is telling us to make clear how kingship works. Jesus became flesh. He lived here with us. He lived a life of suffering and service and love. And for that, the powers that be killed Him. And God reversed the sentence and raised Him to life. And not only raised Him to life, but said, Now the kingdom is yours. Now all authority has been granted to you. Come and sit at My right hand. What we know, we Christians have now revealed to us, is that the Jesus who came in the flesh is the Son of God. The right hand of God is His rightful place. And here we have a King who is one of us and who is Son of God. He is God the Son. Now, our culture, maybe more than any other culture, has trouble with the idea of a king. We have difficulty even relating sometimes to the idea that Jesus Christ is king. Non-Christian culture has difficulty with thinking of Jesus as king, of course. But even we Christians have difficulty relating to Jesus as king. We had a revolution in this country to get rid of kings. And we don't want kings back. And there's a real sense in which the idea of one person being exalted above all the others and serving as king over us is kind of offensive to our Republican ideas or Democratic ideas. Both of those with small, uh, non-capitalized, by the way. Everybody's equal in America. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody has a divine right to rule. And even our language sometimes reflects this as Christians. 
Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you know Jesus personally? Have you invited Jesus into your heart? We talk about as if all that matters is a one-to-one relationship with Jesus as someone who can forgive your sins. Because that's the part that we're most comfortable with, I think, from our cultural standpoint. An individual relationship with someone who can save us from our sins. But that is a very, very narrow view of who Jesus actually is. And one of the values of looking at the big story of the Bible is to get clarity about what God's actually up to. God, in Jesus Christ, is once again going to be King of the entire universe. Jesus Christ, exalted at the right hand of heaven, has now been officially proclaimed as the one, not only who made all the powers and authorities that might exist, but now who officially has the right to rule everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, if you read what Colossians says and what Ephesians says about Him. Jesus is the King that we've all wanted. Jesus is the leader that we've wished for. A leader who is truly righteous and who is truly the servant of everyone that He rules. Jesus exalted at the right hand of the Father. What do you think that means for you and I? We are part of a people of God. I mean, I understand what people are getting at when they talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. You have to make a decision for Jesus. You alone, your parents can't make it for you. I get that. That's true, but it's not enough. When Jesus saves you, He puts you into a people. He puts you into a kingdom. And it's the kingdom that lives longer than you do. And it's the kingdom that is blessed with a multitude of gifts, more gifts than any one person can have. And it's the kingdom that has the power to reach many different kinds of hearts and speak many different languages and to be in many different places at once. You as an individual can't do those things, but the kingdom of Jesus Christ can. And we are part of a kingdom. When you say, I'm a member of the church, what you mean is, I am a subject of the King and part of His kingdom. I want you to make a note. I didn't have space to put this on your study sheet, but I want you to make a note. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. What does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand of God? It means that when you go about your daily life, this is what Paul says, when you go about your daily life, there are tons of things that drag your eyes down to this world, that, that, that demand your attention, saying, no, look down here. 
Look at your bills and look at your problems and look at the people who are being mean to you. Focus, focus, focus. And Paul says, don't fall for that. Fix your eyes where Jesus is at the right hand of God. And that will change the way you live tomorrow. Not only that, that will tell you where you're going. If you read all the way down to verse 4, he says, because there is coming a day when each one of us who are followers of King Jesus will be exalted with Him and share in His glory. That's what your life is headed towards, Christians. That's what it means to be part of this kingdom. It is the only worthwhile life available to human beings. It is the life we must be dedicated to and is the life we must tell to others to invite them in. If you need to respond to God's gracious invitation to come be part of the eternal kingdom of King Jesus, if you need to be baptized, to become a member, a subject of that kingdom, or if you need prayers to continue to be willing to fight and struggle in that kingdom, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?